You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. It is my pleasure to introduce this evening our guest speaker, Mark Whitaker. He is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, My Long Trip Home and Smoketown. The former managing editor of CNN Worldwide, he was previously the Washington Bureau Chief for NBC News and a reporter and editor at Newsweek, where he rose to become the first African-American leader of a national news weekly. In his latest work, Smoketown, Whitaker takes readers on a rousing, revelatory journey and offers a timely reminder that black history is not at all bleak. Please join me in welcoming Mark Whitaker to the Pratt Library. Um, Well, thanks for having me. This is like a really impressive room. I want to hear the story of... uh, how you got all these, these books. Um, uh, so I, I want to I talk about um, the book, but at first, you know, I want to tell, the, I mean, the question I get asked all the time when uh, people find out about this book is, uh, why Pittsburgh? Um, and the short answer is that my dad grew up in Pittsburgh, um, and that's where my roots are. But it's a little bit more complicated, so I, I have some time here, so I'll tell you the story. Because it connects these, these two books, this, my first book and then this book that I've just written. So um, I, my dad grew up in Pittsburgh, um, went to uh, high school there, left, uh, went to Swarthmore College outside of Pennsylvania, and never went back. Um, he would go back to visit his parents and his, his sisters and so forth, but he never moved back. And he went on to become... Uh, uh, a scholar, an academic, uh, very distinguished, first black um, PhD uh, in pol- politics from Princeton University, and he taught at UCLA and back at Princeton. He founded the African American Studies program at Princeton. Uh, but he, he was a brilliant man, but he was also a, uh, a very troubled man. Um, and he became an alcoholic, and he lost a bunch of jobs. My parents split up. He was involved with a lot of different women. He and I had a very you know, tempestuous relationship. Um, he was absent for a long time during my childhood. Then when he reappeared, I kept trying to reconcile with him, and it kept not working out, and I had kept having to leave. And, um, and then as an adult, he eventually stopped drinking, and we slowly developed a relationship, although it was still complicated. Um, and... When I was, um, for a long time, when I was working in journalism at Newsweek and then in television, you know, if I went to a dinner or something and people asked about my family and I would tell this story. And then I'd also say, you know, talk about the fact that um, uh, my parents were interracial, you know, so my dad was black, my mom was white, my mother uh, was a refugee from Nazi occupied France during the war. Um, When they met at Swarthmore College, my dad was a student, the only black male student at at, uh, Swarthmore in the mid-50s, and my mother was already a professor. 
So it was an interracial marriage <laughs> between a student and, and, and a professor. So it was like, it was wrong in every way. Um, and my mother also, her family had a fascinating uh, history. Her father was a clergyman who, um, during the war, helped hide lots of um, uh, Jews and children and so forth, and was later recognized as a righteous Gentile by the state of Israel. Um, anyway, so um, I, uh, people would say, you know, that's a book. You know, wow, your family is so fascinating. And anyway, but I was busy with my job, and I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure I was really ready to, to take that on. Then in uh, 2008, right after Thanksgiving, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, my dad passed. And a year later to the day, Saturday after Thanksgiving, 2009, I woke up in the middle of the night and I said, I want to write a book about... Um, about him, about my relationship with him. And then ultimately, as I started to write that book, which became this book, my family memoir, my long trip home, um, it also became the story of my mother's family, my grandparents, sort of multi-generational family. And the reason that happened was that I quickly discovered once I started, I, you know, I'd never, I, was, I had written a lot of, of you know, uh, journalism, but I'd never written a book before. And I quickly realized that um, I didn't really, there wasn't enough material, I didn't remember enough to write a whole book just from memory, and also I wasn't even sure that I remembered things correctly. Um, so uh, I, I, I realized that I was going to have to report my own life, you know, um, and find out what really happened and fill in all the holes. Um, so I set out to do that. And um, uh, anyway, so while I was reporting, so my dad was born in 1935 in Pittsburgh. And my uh, grandparents, uh, my granddad and my grandmother were both undertakers. So my granddad was one of the first um, black undertakers in Pittsburgh. Uh, he came from Texas around World War I. He was the 11th and last child of two former slaves, grew up in rural Texas, made his way in his teens by himself to Pittsburgh. He gets a job um, in, um, in the steel mills, low-level job, uh, but to make some extra money, he gets a job as a chauffeur for a white undertaker who realizes as more and more black folks arrive in the first wave of what was called the Great Migration, uh, that somebody was going to have to bury all these black folks and it wasn't going to be him because it would be bad for, for the white funeral home, undertaker if you know, it got out that he was burying black folks. So he said, what this town needs is more black undertakers. So my dad was, my granddad was driving him around, and he seemed like a sort of a bright, he had never finished high school, but he seemed like a bright, ambitious guy. And so he said, he offered to help set him up in the business. So that's how my granddad becomes an undertaker. And then later, uh, my granddad was married twice. His first wife died. They had three daughters who my, my, my aunts. Um, uh, and then his second wife was my grandmother. And once they got married, he convinced her to get an undertaker's license too. So they were both undertakers. And later, 
Later on, he had a, a stroke. He couldn't run the business anymore. She took over the business. So that's the world that my uh, father had grown up in. Um, and I knew all that part of it because I used to visit them all the time. And even after my parents split up, my mom would still take us every year to visit my dad's family in Pittsburgh, probably because she loved them and they loved her, but also she wanted, he, she wanted us to stay in touch with them. Um, and um, anyway, so I started to do research on, on what it was like in Pittsburgh in the time that my dad was growing up, in the 30, late 30s, 40s, and 50s, before he went away. And I, while I was doing the research, I was on the internet, and I googled, and I found there is a, 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 a photographer from Pittsburgh who's now become famous, pretty famous, you may know his name, his name is Charles Teeny Harris. Um, and Tini Harris was a, uh, the photographer for the Pittsburgh Courier. Um, at, uh, but also, in addition to going around town doing all these photographs of the Courier, he took thousands of other photographs of every aspect of black life, all the entertainers and the middle class and the working class and so forth and so on. And it's a long story, but his, he, sold his he sold his photographs when he retired. He didn't have any money to a street hustler who said he would help sell them. This guy cheated him. Teeny had to sue for the rights to the, to the photographs. He died before he won the lawsuit, but the lawyer representing him actually did prevail. Um, and um, uh, got the, the photographs back and arranged to, for them to be donated to the Carnegie Museum of Art, where they are now. And there's this amazing archive. And about the time that I was working on this book, they had just finished putting the whole archive online. Um, so um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm Googling all of a sudden, you know, I'm looking at the Teeny Harris archive, and I said, you know, I wonder if there are pictures of my, my grandparents. And I put in their names, and sure enough, there were these two photographs of, of my granddad and my, and, and my grandmother. My granddad and the, and the photo, they're both in this, this book in the dedication. The photograph of my granddad, he's looking very distinguished, presiding over a, mil a military funeral of a black veteran, um, uh, probably in the early 50s. And then the one of my grandmother, she's at a sort of a ladies' tea party where all the ladies are taking a picture and they're all decked out in these fancy hats, which I vividly remember from, from go visiting her in Pittsburgh. And, and whenever we went, went, she would take us to church. You know, the first thing is, like, you have to get a haircut. Then, you, then, 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 you know, she would cook all day on Saturday. She would cook fried chicken. She'd cook chitlins, whatever. We'd go to church, and then we'd go to a picnic, you know, because that was like going to the country for black folks. It was like you went, you got on a trolley, and you went <laughs> to a park someplace for a picnic. Um, anyway, so, um, and I said, wow, this is cool. This is my grandparents, you know, back in the day when they were prosperous and before the Pittsburgh went into decline. Um, anyway, so then I started clicking through the rest of the Teeny Harris archive, and I was like blown away. There was like every famous blackface figure in music, sports, politics in the middle of the 20th century. You know, and there were the people who I knew had grown up in Pittsburgh, like Billy Strayhorn, Billy Eckstein, but there was Duke Ellington, and there was 
uh, um, Louis Armstrong at the Crawford Grill, and there was Ella Fitzgerald passing through town, and there was Lionel Hampton getting off a plane, and there was Joe Lewis, you know, um, at a black tie, you know, affair on the, on the hill, and there was Jackie Robinson showing up for his first game in Pittsburgh as a Dodger. And I said, wow, this was like, you know, Pittsburgh was really sort of, you know, a happening place in the day. And I said, I got to look into this. Well, I started to look into it, and I realized that that was just the half of it. And that for, as I say in this book, for a brief but shining moment, Pittsburgh, this small community, which really at the time was a fraction of the size, the black community of Harlem or Chicago or uh, Philadelphia, Detroit, even Baltimore, um, had this enormous influence. It had the Pittsburgh Courier, which had become, in, by the 30s, had overtaken the Chicago Defender to become the best-selling and most influential black newspaper um, in America. Uh, the Pittsburgh Courier led the early uh, switch of the black vote from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party in the early 30s. Um, uh, hard to believe now, but you know there was a time before, before Roosevelt when blacks voted overwhelmingly Republican out of loyalty to Abraham Lincoln, and that changed in the 30s, and the Courier started all that. Um, the Courier also crusaded for black soldiers, and a lot of the opportunities that were created for, in the military for black folks um, resulted from crusades that the Courier uh, had, um, had undertaken. Um, during, the, during the war, the Courier led what they called the Double Victory Campaign, which was a national campaign to rally black support for World War II. That was victory number one in exchange for the demand that after the war there be a victory number two, which was an end to discrimination and inequality. That never happened. I'll get back to that later. But uh, it was a huge deal uh, in black America. Um, uh, at the time. And then the Courier also was at the forefront of, you know, the early coverage of the civil rights movement in the 50s. Meanwhile, on the, on the sports side, you have Pittsburgh in the 30s had the two dominant Negro League baseball teams of the time, the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the Homestead Grays. Five of the, of the uh, Negro League players later to be inducted into the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, all played for the Pittsburgh Crawfords on the same team in the mid-30s. Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cole Papa Bell, Judy Johnson, and Oscar Charleston. Um, uh, the Courier-led um, sort of uh, played a big role in putting Joe Lewis on the map. Uh, the sports writer, uh, Wendell Smith, who introduced Jackie Robinson to Branch Rickey, uh, worked for The Courier, um, came out of Pittsburgh. Um, if anybody saw the movie 42, he's the Andre Holland character. Well, you know that in 42, you see him kind of as Jackie Robinson's wingman in, in the rookie year of the Dodgers. What you don't see as much is that for an entire decade, he had crusaded for the integration of, of Major League Baseball. So the whole Jackie Robinson story doesn't happen without Wendell Smith from, from Pittsburgh. Um, in music, not only do you have these big names that everybody, if you're a jazz fan, you know, Billy Threhorn, Billy Eckstein, and, and um, Mary Lou Williams, and Errol Garner, 
and Art Blakey uh, and Kenny Clark and Ray Brown and George Benson all came out of Pittsburgh. All, they all grew up in Pittsburgh. But then there were also all these other um, groundbreaking musicians whose lives were changed by their connections to Pittsburgh. So Duke Ellington met Billy Strayhorn and, they be, you know, and that whole collab his collaboration started uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Sarah Vaughan all played together where they met or really started bonding and started forming the music that would become bebop was in playing in the swing orchestras of Earl Father Hines and Billy Eckstein in the 30s and 40s, both who grew up in Pittsburgh. So it had this huge influence in music, uh, in art, Romare Bearden, if you like, he, he, he grew up in Pittsburgh. And then in the middle of all of this, by the way, in 1945, August Wilson is born on the hill and goes on to become America's greatest black playwright and to, and to set nine of his 10 century cycle plays in Pittsburgh. Um, so um, I said, you know, somebody's got to write a book about this because, you know, aspects of this, some of those people have had entire books written about them. Some of this history was known, but um, nobody had really put together the fact that this was all going on in one place at the same time. And um, and it was interesting because to the degree that um, when you did read a biography of, say, a Billy Strayhorn or a Mary Lou Williams um, or a Josh Gibson, usually at the beginning of the book it'd say, well, they grew up in Pittsburgh and it was sort of a miracle that they came from Pittsburgh. They came from this grimy steel town, you know, and somehow went on to accomplish these great things. Well, I think what you'll see if you read my book is actually it's, it was the opposite. It wasn't despite the fact that they came out of Pittsburgh in that era. It was, they were all geniuses in their own right, but, but largely also because there was this extraordinary, um, uh, this extraordinary culture. So, uh, you know, I want to talk about um, what that culture was, what created it, um, what became of it, but I, I'll leave that to the questions. I don't want to... Um, I, I, I want to take your questions and let the discussion go um, where, um, uh, where you want to take it. But um, I just want to tell two stories about this, um, uh, th this effect of having this extraordinary culture and how once it was created, at least during this time, these folks all kind of inspired each other and pushed each other and raised each other's games. So one of the things in, in, in the sphere of music that um, there are all these great musicians that came out of Pittsburgh, but one thing that was really striking to me as I did the research was the number of pianists who came out of Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh had this unbelievable um, uh, piano tradition. Um, and, um, and it started because there were a lot of people who, a lot of black folks arrived in Pittsburgh playing the piano already, able to read music. Um, once they were there, um, they had this opportunity, these great opportunities to study music. Um, there were a, a number of fantastic piano teachers, um, uh, there's a, a woman named Char Charlotte Catlin who's, um, uh, I write about in this book. But then also there were all of these 
um, like German immigrants and sort of, you know, hard, you know, uh, old school piano teachers uh, from Europe who had immigrated to Pittsburgh. And, you know, once, and a lot of these uh, uh, pianists, I mean, your old father Hines, who grew up downriver in a steel town downriver, was studying by the time everybody realized he was a piano prodigy. His dad set him up with like this German immigrant who's having him, do, you know, practice with Chopin and playing Cherny and so forth. So that's why he has the chops that he um, that he has. Um, and I, I, I was particularly struck by this because my grandmother, who became a businesswoman, but also played the piano. And I remember the piano in the parlor. And I, as I was doing my research, I came across all of these clips about my grandmother playing, you know, at you know in church recitals and at, you know, Carnegie Library and so forth. Um, anyway, so, so two piano stories. One was, how many of you are jazz fans? Okay, so you know who Ray Brown is, right? So Ray Brown, probably one of the half dozen greatest bass players of all time, was married for a while to... Um, uh, to Ella Fitzgerald, was one of the founding members of um, the modern jazz quartet, played in these historic trios with Oscar Robertson, uh, Oscar Peterson, sorry. Um, and um, so here's why Ray Brown played the bass. Like a lot of uh, uh, black, young black musicians in Pittsburgh um, in that era, he grew up playing the piano. Uh, but uh, he shows up, he, he uh, goes to Shenley High School, and there are these two sort of big, really impressive for the era high schools in Pittsburgh, integrated high schools, Shenley and Westinghouse, that play a big, a lot of the figures in my book went to those two high schools. Um, and, um, but he's one of 26 pianists trying out for the orchestra. And so, because you can only play one at a time with the full orchestra, each of the pianists only got 15 minutes of rehearsal time a week with the full orchestra. So he was like sitting around waiting for his 15 minutes, and he sees this instrument like lying on its side in the corner, and he says to the music teacher, he says, what's that? He says, it's a double bass. He said, if I played that instrument, could I play all the time? He said, yeah, we need a bass player. So he took up the bass, and that's how he took it. <laughs> okay. So then the other piano story, just in terms of like how much, um, how rich the, the, the culture was at the time. So you all know who Errol Garner is, right? So Errol Garner, it's, it's a little curious to me that Errol Garner is not universally known, because in the, in the 50s and 60s, Earl Garner was probably the most internationally famous jazz pianist in the world. He would play in concert halls around the world. He was represented by Saul Hurok. He used to be on The Tonight Show all the time, all these on television. Um, but, you know, everybody who knew anything about Earl Garner knew that he was a genius, but they also kind of assumed that he was sort of self-taught because he couldn't read music, and he was quite open about that. And somehow he managed to produce all this great music without ever being able um, to read to read it. And you know he was also famous for like he would just show up <clears throat> at a concert or a recording session and just sit down and flawlessly play like you know twelve numbers back to back, 
would never tell anybody what he was going to play before he played it, including his own sidemen. You know, so they'd be sitting there like, okay, where's he going next? Like, I gotta, we, you know, listen, okay, okay, all right, I figured out it's, you know, whatever it was. Anyway, so, um, and, um, anyway, so that was, you know, when he kind of, you know, he was, he was small, he kind of had this kind of slightly, you know, sort of eccentric look, um, and so I think that was kind of the impression that he was just this sort of in, out of nowhere genius. Anyway, so, but um, in Pittsburgh they knew better. So I just want to read you the brief passage uh, uh, that I write after Errol Garner died. Um, and then we can, and then I'll take questions. Because he died so young, because his looks were so unusual, and because he was so famous for not reading music, Errol Garner would come to be remembered as an inexplicable genius, as if he had come out of nowhere. But serious students of jazz knew where the music came from, how deeply Garner had absorbed and synthesized the traditions of stride and ragtime piano, of swing and bebop, of Broadway show tunes and polyrhythmic percussion that traced all the way back to Africa. And the many talented musicians from his hometown knew where he had first encountered those influences and developed the ambition to outshine them all, including, in the end, even great crossover heartthrob Billy Eckstein. The year after Garner left Westinghouse High, another piano prodigy graduated from the school. He was a skinny boy named Frederick Jones, who was known by his nickname Fritz. As an adult, he became a member of the Nation of Islam and a leading light of bebop under the name of Ahmad Jamal. In a documentary film about Garner that came out 25 years after his death, Jamal had an answer for the critics who charged that Errol was more of a gifted entertainer than a true artist. Quote, he could make you laugh, and he could make you cry, and he could make you think, Jamal said. That's what an artist is supposed to do. And where did that artistry come from? Quote, what was different about Errol was one word, Pittsburgh, Jamal said. Pittsburgh produced this kind of talent. Um, so as I say, you know, it was, it, was, it was a culture where, you know, even if you didn't read music, it was so much in the air, and if you were the kind of genius that Errol Garner was, you could kind of, you, 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 could, uh, you could pick it up. Okay, so I have a lot of other things I could I'd say, but before I just go on, why don't I take questions, and we'll probably get to, to most of the other things I would say in response to your questions. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. So um, until the 1930s, uh, well, of course, you know, blacks couldn't vote until after the Civil War. Um, and there's a whole story about, obviously, the backlash against all of that and Reconstruction. And, and thankfully, we're learning more about that. Uh, more and more history is coming out about that. Um, but um, so from the late 1860s until the, the 1930s, uh, blacks voted overwhelmingly Republican because Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. And so 
they felt like they, you know, uh, they were loyal to him. But by the early 30s, Robert, so the publisher, the person who turned the courier into what it became was named Robert L. Van. And Robert L. Van was this fascinating character. He uh, came from North Carolina. His mother was a slave cook. Um, he, um, his, his early ch earliest childhood memories were sleeping in the kitchen where she, she cooked. Um, they didn't even have their own room in the sort of uh, plantation house. Um, and, um, but he was a very driven man and like a lot of figures in this book, had a mother who really cared desperately about his education. Um, and so he found these various ways by working himself um, to, to work himself through school, for the first high school and then various college and, and, and um, in the South. And then, um, you know, I, t I talk about the fact that one of the things that makes um, the, the black community in Pittsburgh so unique was that in that era there were educational opportunities that were available in Pittsburgh that were quite rare. So I mentioned these two high schools which because of all the Gilded Age money, you know, Carnegie and Mellon and Frick and so forth, um, uh, were incredibly well-funded um, uh, for, for the time and were integrated from the very beginning, from the, like, you know, the early 1910s, 1920s, not in large numbers, but they admitted black students. And a lot of uh, families would go out of their way to, you know, help get their kids into those schools, like Earl, Earl Hines's family came from Downriver. His parents sent him to live with an aunt in East Liberty, in the, in, so that he could go to Shenley High School. You know, Billy Strayhorn's uh, parents moved to Homewood so that he could go um, to, um, to to Westinghouse High School. Um, anyway, so um, so Robert L. Van made his way from North Carolina all the way to Pittsburgh in um, the early just after the turn of the century, to take a scholarship that had been, there was a, a white abolitionist named Charles Avery, who died in 1858, just before the Civil War, who had left money for a scholarship for black students at what became the University of Pittsburgh. It was called the Western University at the time. And, um, uh, and knowing that this scholarship was available, he made his way all the way to Pittsburgh to claim it, and he got his undergraduate degree, and then a law degree. He became the first black um, graduate from the law school at what would become the University of Pittsburgh. And then he met a guy who had started this little local pamphlet. He was a poet who lived in, who worked in the, in the Heinz factory, and who was looking to raise money to help publish this thing, and Van offered to help him and then once they attracted some investors, the investors decided that Van should be running the paper. So they put him in charge. This was in 1910. And it, over the next 20 years, he turned that little tiny eight-page pamphlet into the Pittsburgh Courier, which became the leading black newspaper in America, 14 editions published all over uh, America. Um, 
by the 30s, it had uh, a third of a million readers. By the end of World War II, it had almost a half a million readers. Anyway, so in 19, by 1932, and, and, and uh, Van had always been a Republican, um, but by 1932, he had decided that the Republican Party had taken the black vote for granted. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> um, and so, uh, and so he sort of just decided, like, what the hell? You know, he had this. He had this. Um, uh, uh, his, his he this point of view that basically that he, he the term he uses the black vote should be a liquid asset, right? It shouldn't be a fixed asset for either party. The only way you're going to get respect is by showing that you know, you're not just blindly loyal to one party. So he gave a speech in 1932, uh, at, just in the, at the end, in the home stretch of the election, uh, Roosevelt versus Hoover. Um, in St. Louis, there was this big uh, forum in a library in St. Louis um, that um, a speaker's forum that was, you know, very, very um, prestigious. He was asked to give a speech there, and he gave a speech which he then printed in the Courier and distributed around the country in which he said that it was time for black folks to turn the picture of Lincoln to the wall. So later, like JFK, in those days, a lot of black folks had a, had a an early photograph or a, or a painting of Abraham Lincoln on their wall. So, and it was a pretty vivid image. So, his, so he said that was a way of saying it's time for us to just get over our emotional attachment to Lincoln and vote our self-interest, which is to try to see whether we can get a better deal from the Democrats. Um, and as a result of this, the, the, the big move of the black vote from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. So, so at this point, probably, you know, blacks are voting at least 90% Republican at this point. The big move didn't actually happen until four years later, until Roosevelt ran for re-election in 1936. But in 1932, as the result of Van taking this position, the black vote shifted dramatically in Pittsburgh and Allegheny County in western Pennsylvania which was a deeply Republican uh, state at the time, run entirely by the city and the state were run by Republican machines. So there was absolutely no local reason for black folks to vote Democratic, but Van was persuasive enough that, and it was, and it was when FDR and his political handlers saw that happen, they said, you know, maybe we actually can capture the black vote. So once he was in office, he made a big play for the black vote, and that ended up paying off by 1936 and 1940 in a huge move. To, and um, so he sort of started it all. I mean, it all sort of started in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania. And when you think about the implications of that, because once black folks started voting Democratic, that changed the base of the Democratic Party. And ultimately, that leads to under Johnson, the, the, um, the Democratic Party actually embracing, finally getting around to embracing, you know, civil rights legislation, voting rights legislation. But of course, as soon as they do that, the whole South, which had been the most, the South used to be the most reliably Democratic part of the country. 
And that, all that changed when, the Democrat, when, 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 when blacks started voting Democratic and they became part of the coalition, at which point they all defected to the Republican Party. And that's why the most Republican part of America now is in the Deep South. So when you think about how that still is part of our story today politically and the idea that it all started with, this, with Robert L. Vann's speech in 1932, it's sort of cool. When I moved here, I expected to see a big jazz scene in Baltimore because of the majority black population. Right, right. And as it turns out, Pittsburgh has a much more lively jazz scene. A friend of mine plays a lot of sax there. Right. It's just, I mean, he's made a living at it. Yeah. Right. There, there, there are prizes, there right. are many venues, mm-hmm. and so some of what you're saying about this community, it, it makes sense just in terms of that. Yeah, no, it's, it's true, but I think what you'll see from the book is that's very deep, right? And so... I think, you know, I mean, it's great that there have been these, you know, Isabel Wilkerson wrote this great book about the Great Migration. You probably, a lot of you have read, and Nicholas Lemon wrote another good one. He's, he's, he's a personal friend of mine, and that's on the bookshelves here. I recommend that book, too, if you haven't read it. But I think what, what those books, they, there's some of it, but they don't really sort of get to in great detail, is how the different communities in the North were based on where people had come from, right? So Chicago is a blues town. Why is Chicago a blues town? Chicago's a blues town because a lot of the migrants, the majority of the migrants, came from the deep south up the Mississippi River, right? And by the time they had, then they, they got off the boat in Mississippi and then, you know, and then that's why, and they brought the blues from the deep south and that was their music, right? Pittsburgh, it's, it's ironic because August Wilson, both if you, go, if you go to his plays, but also you read his interviews, he talks about the blues and how the blues is the basis of black culture. And I, have, I talk about, in my, in my chapter on August Wilson at the end of the book, I talk about it was when he discovered um, Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey that he felt like he had understood the, black, the, the voice of black America. And it was kind of ironic because he grew up in Pittsburgh and, and the blues was never Pittsburgh's music. You know, um, Pittsburgh had this kind of unique mixture of, I mean, there were a lot of folks who arrived playing classical music. You know, there were, there were, there were all black classical orchestras in Pittsburgh at the turn of the century, when you think about that, right? And, and they could read music. You know, they came, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that particularly in the first waves, first um, after the Civil War, um, World War I, the first big wave of the Great Migration, the folks who came to Pittsburgh were coming from, more likely from the northern and eastern parts of the Old South. So from Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, North Carolina, there are a bunch of figures in my book who came from North Carolina. Right? So they were not picking cotton, you know? And if they had been slaves, 
you know, chances are that they had been they had been house you know they had been house servants, you know, and so they a lot of them knew how to read. They knew how to play instruments. They knew how to read music, and so they sort of arrived with that level of sophistication. And then because there's a fascinating character who was sort of like the the king of the riverboat. Um, uh, musicians. So in the age of steamboats, um, a lot of people would vacation on steamboats, you know, or they would take like a trip. It was like a cruise in those days to, to ride on the steamboat. And so a lot of uh, jazz musicians in the 20s and the 30s cut their teeth playing on riverboats. Louis Armstrong, one of his first big jobs was playing on, on, on a riverboat. And, these, and um, one of the reasons that New Orleans music became so influential around the rest of the country is that the best musicians in New Orleans didn't just stay in New Orleans playing the jazz that they played. They got on the riverboats and they came all the way north and all these people who would, you know, spend a weekend or whatever or take a trip on a riverboat um, uh, would get exposed to this music. And there was a famous uh, riverboat orchestra uh, leader in that era named Fate Marable. And he came from New Orleans, um, uh, but he uh, would um, come all the way upriver from Louisiana, all the way to Pittsburgh every single year, and spend um, half the year in Pittsburgh, and then going back, and then take you know, spend a lot of time on, on the steamboats uh, uh, on the way, going there and going and going back. And it was sort of Fate Maribel who was responsible for sort of introducing the ragtime and the New Orleans sound uh, to Pittsburgh. Um, and he was another stickler for, you know, his musicians reading music. In fact, the first time that Louis Armstrong tried to play for him, he sent him away because, because Louis didn't read music well enough yet. And then he came back later and he learned how to read music and then he accepted him into his orchestra. So you have the classical, you start with the classical, then you add the New Orleans, and then, you know, a lot of, um, you know, Eckstein, Strayhorn, uh, Mary Lou Williams were all sort of in the avant-garde of swing music. But then they also, partly because I think their ears were so sophisticated, they were really open to bebop. You know, so... Earl Hines, who had a swing orchestra in the 30s, and Billy Eckstein, who sort of inherited a lot of his musicians, he, he, started, he, was, he was Father Hines' singer, and then he became a band leader in his own right. And both of them were, you know, uh, going out and looking for musicians like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Fats Navarro and Dexter Gordon and... They all played, you know, um, Gene Hammonds, all played in their orchestras, and, and they were open to that and to the fact that, I mean, when they were playing on the bandstand, they were playing, you know, a little bit more traditionally, but they, but they knew Art Blakey, you know, both of those guys knew that these guys wanted to play a different kind of music, and they encouraged it, you know. So, um, you know, so that it goes very deep, you know. I think that that's... It's one of the things that was fascinating to me about people say, well, what's, what was the surprise about reading the book? Even the stuff I thought I knew really well, like, 
you go back, you realize that it's all rooted in stuff that happened, you know, a generation or two generations earlier, or that, you know, there were influences that, of people who you had never heard of, but if it were not for those people, the people who became famous, you know, wouldn't have become what they became. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I know the book is a, is a history right. of, 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 of uh, the 20th century uh, uh, black Pittsburgh, but if, if I, as a journalist, if I could ask you sure. to, to um, maybe do this in the, in the book, mm-hmm. I think that, if I hear you correctly, it's a polite way of asking what happened. Because <laughs> I think before you... Well, no, it's not. And so it's not. And, and we all know, look, I mean, we all know. And it's a national shame. But I think it's something that I think we want to sort of understand our history. And we want to think about where we go from here. We have to grapple with the fact that there are neighborhoods across America that are worse off now than they were under segregation. And how did that happen? All right. Um, now, I'll just tell you the, the you know the Pittsburgh version of that, which is um, you know because Pittsburgh is the city of three rivers, you know, it's very attractive to think in terms of like metaphors of three. So I give you three. So I talked about the three, I talk about the three factors that created this culture, right? So it's where the migrants came from was educational opportunities. And the third one was that in Pittsburgh, compared with say Harlem, you know, because I, I, I assert that it was, you know, equal to the Harlem Renaissance, at least for a period. And one difference between the, the Pittsburgh Renaissance and the Harlem Renaissance is that the Harlem Renaissance was largely literary and artistic. In Pittsburgh had an aspect of that, but it also had a deep respect for business. So it was a place where if you wanted to start a business, like my granddad, you wanted to, and a lot of the big figures in this book were businessmen, they were racketeers, they were, you know, they weren't just artists. Okay, so that's the, the, by the late 50s and the early 60s, you have the reverse of that, which is the three big factors that destroyed these communities. Right. One was the decline of the steel industry, you know, which is like so. In in it's and it, and it would it, the the industries varied, but throughout all of these cities, you know, including this one, what happened to black folks is they had come to the north to have a better life than they could have in the south, to get jobs in those industries, steel industry in um, uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, car industry in Detroit. Um, in Baltimore, what was it? It was like steel, steel, auto. Yeah, sort of a combination. All right, so, um, and, and just at the time when, for a variety of reasons, technological, other reasons, those industries were going into decline, 
was precisely the moment where white folks were fleeing the cities to the suburbs. It was easy for them to do that. They could get loans, they could get, and black folks couldn't, you know, for a whole variety of reasons. We know lending, other reasons. They didn't want to live in the suburbs necessarily. And some, anyway, so they sort of got left behind in the cities at precisely the point where economically the cities were declining. So we all know about that. Number two is urban renewal, right? And what happened in the Pittsburgh version was that in the name of, of cleaning up the city and improving its, its reputation, which it had this reputation of this sort of, you know, smelly, soot field, you know, sort of hellhole, all of these white business and political interests got together after the World War II and decided we're going to transform Pittsburgh. We're going to have this miracle of urban renewal. And the whole birth of the modern downtown of Pittsburgh started with that and the development of what they call the point and so forth. But uh, part of that, they decided they were going to build the sort of centerpiece for a lot of this was going to be this gleaming new civic center downtown, which was going to be, you know, they were going to, it was going to attract sports teams and they were going to have concerts and political conventions. And in the name of building a civic center, they tore down the lower part of the Hill District, which was not only the most heavily black neighborhood residentially in Pittsburgh, it was also the, the, the center of black uh, cultural life. It's where even all the folks who lived further up the hill, what they, you know, on Sugar Top, who were, you know, like the elite, and folks who lived in other neighborhoods, Homewood and East Liberty and in the other neighborhoods surrounding, they all came to the lower hill to go to the jazz clubs, to go to the social clubs, to get their hair cut, to go to church on Sunday. And in tearing down the lower hill, they, they tore out the heart of the black community. Plus, they did not prepare for displacing 80,000 residents of the lower hill. And there were few, you know, housing projects. And we know that that, you know, what happened to folks who moved to housing projects became, they became their kind of own form of sort of prison. But in Pittsburgh, there wasn't even enough room in the housing projects. So they all, all the black folks who had lived in the lower hill dispersed to the surrounding neighborhoods, which had been previously mixed. And as soon as you got to a certain critical mass of black folks in those neighborhoods, all the rest of the white folks left. And the services declined, the schools declined. Um, but there was also a third factor, and this is the one that I think doesn't get enough discussion, and it's not solely to blame, but I think it was part of it. People talk about white flight. There was black flight. There was black middle class flight from these neighborhoods. Uh, and that includes my father and his generation. My father is precisely the kind of guy that in the age of segregation, before the civil rights movement, before affirmative action, before all of that, he would have stayed in Pittsburgh. He would have taken over, you know, the family business. Uh, he would have maybe become a political leader. He would have, you know, maybe gotten into journalism. Who knows what he would have done, but, he, but all of his talents would have stayed in that community. Instead, he left and he never came back. And, you know, it's interesting. While I was doing reporting on this book, I, I met a number of people who the... the, the sons and daughters and, and grandchildren of some of the big figures uh, in the book in this era who had come back to Pittsburgh after, like my father, they left to go to college. They had careers elsewhere. They thought they'd never came, come back, but they did come back 
years later, usually to care for air ailing parents. That was the thing that brought them back. And when they came back and they saw what had happened to the neighborhoods where they grew up and the schools that they, where they had gone to school, they felt ashamed. They felt like we weren't here to defend these neighborhoods. The other thing that was a factor in Pittsburgh, which was less true elsewhere, is that at least, you know, in, in um, you know, on the one hand, it was, Pittsburgh was really unusual, the fact that they had all this accomplishment given how small the community was. But it also meant when all this started to happen that there, was, there wasn't critical mass for, for the black community even to have political power. So there's never been a black mayor in Pittsburgh. You know, there have been very few city councilmen. You know, at least in a lot of these, these other cities, there was enough of a critical mass that once all the white folks left, blacks had voting power, you know, and they could elect black mayors and they could elect black councilmen and so forth. And that even um, uh, didn't happen in Pittsburgh. So, um, so that leads to the question that once you acknowledge what happened, and then, of course, you know, these drug laws and everything we know about, you know, discriminatory drug laws and sentencing and, you know, there's a, a uh, one of the guys, I don't write about all of this in the book because it's really a different, a different book, but I'm happy to talk about it, but, but I got to know in reporting this book very well a guy named Joe Williams, who is the, uh, the, the lone black judge on the, on the uh, Allegheny Court of Common Please, and one of the few people of my father's generation is a little younger who stayed in Pittsburgh and became a lawyer and he became a criminal defender and he's now a judge. And, you know, he was, he's very big into one of the things that we have to deal with in these communities is um, uh, sentencing. So his big cause is sentencing reform because, because of all these drug laws, you know, um, for minor drug offenses you become a felon. You know, and once you're a felon, as Joe says, you're effed. <laughs> you know, um, and he tells he t you know he t <laughs> he tells you know defendants in his courtroom who've just been sentenced. He said, "Young man, you're going to go to time. You now have a felony rap on your sheet, and you are effed. And you just have to understand how this is going to you know this is going to follow you for the rest of your life." So anyway, so um, I think that. Um, when you talk about, and again, I don't really, I'm not an expert in this field, but obviously I've thought a lot about it in relation to Pittsburgh. Um, you know, you have to deal with, you know, obviously you have to deal with employment. You have to deal to some degree with drugs, although that's spreading now more to the white community even than the black community. Certainly, you know, the criminal justice system. But... And it all has to happen together, but, but I'm, a, I'm a big believer that there also has to be um, more investment in the schools. You know, and that the kids, the kids who, who can be, you know, can be saved, who, who, who could grow up to, to stay in those communities and become the leaders that those communities need, you have to get to them in school, right? That's where, you know, um, and um, so, and Pittsburgh, it's less true elsewhere, but one of the things that Pittsburgh has going for it right now is that there's a whole new revival of Pitts, the Pittsburgh economy that's going on based on the steel industry's gone, 
But the good news about that is the air is now clean. But meanwhile, partly because they have these great universities and, and so forth, and, and these graduates with you know, programming degrees and, and engineering degrees, all these tech companies want to be in Pittsburgh, right? Um, so Facebook, Google, Uber, of course, they all think, like everybody else, they think that Amazon's going to come there. Um, but, um, but, you know, they're, they're opening major outposts. And, like, my, I'm, I'm, I hope to write about this um, one of these days, is um, the, uh, you know, I, 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 would, I would like to think the private industry would step up. Um, and, and particularly when it comes to schools. Because that makes sense, right? Like, you know, grab some of these kids early, make them realize that, you know, if they stay in school and they graduate, and, you know, maybe if they can get into Carnegie Mellon or whatever, that there, there's a future for them, and it might even be here. You know, because that would even be a start to give, you know, ambitious, bright, promising black folks like my father of the next generation a sense that they don't have to leave in order to make their fortune. They could actually stay. And that would just be, in and of itself, would be a beginning. How are we doing on time? One, okay. Ma'am? You, you have a question? Oh, 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 you're, oh you're, 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 okay. You're in charge. You're, you're sending in the signals from the, from the bench. I get it. Anybody else? Just before, you guys already asked a question, so is there anybody else who wants another one before, sir? I'll, I'll take two since I'll come back to you. You were 23 or? No, in 2003. Oh, 2003. Okay, sorry. I spent a little bit of time reporting on what's going on now. In terms of the story that I tell in this book, the public school system is right at the center of it. Um, and, you know, um, and I, I talked about these two high schools. There are a couple of others. Peabody High School, where Billy Eckstein went. Uh, Romare Bearden went to Peabody. But these two high schools, um, partly because of this tradition that you're talking about in terms of the political structure, um, but also just because of the sheer amount of money that there was in Pittsburgh, you know, back in the day. Uh, Shenley High School, which was completed in 1912, was the first public high school in America to cost more than a million dollars. It cost a million and a half dollars. Westinghouse High School, which was built a decade later, cost two and a half million dollars. And they... Uh, sadly, they sold Shenley. Westinghouse still exists, but they were these enormous schools. 
you know, and they had unbelievable facilities, and you know the little de the school desk with the little the thing the desk that comes around is attached. That was invented at Shenley High School. Shenley High School was the first to have a desk like that, and you know they had these great teachers, and they so you'll see that you know the the role that their high school educations played in the major figures in this book was huge. And it was, as it was in my family, my dad was a, a graduate of, of Westinghouse, so, um, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and that's why, you know, I, I, just in general, this is more of a broad comment, but, you know, I'm not an opponent in any way of charter schools, but I also think that this idea that people think that charter schools are going to solve everything is just wrong. I mean, it may be good for the kids who can get in, but there's no way that you can really have, you know, mass, really, you know, true educational, broad educational opportunity just with charter schools. It's not going to work. You have to work with the public schools. You have one more question, so I didn't move on. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, no, I, I, there's a lot of that in this book, too. Yeah. No, I know, you know that, that was part of it. They were, you know, there were these little pockets, but they weren't that far from each other in the Hill District. Literally, everybody was connected until they, they tore it all down. The other thing, just in terms of, you know, we're talking about coming up the Mississippi River. I think one of the things that actually also sort of, you know, made for this, you know, uh, the sort of spirit of the place in this era was it was not easy to get to Pittsburgh. I mean, Pittsburgh had, you know, became Pittsburgh because it had this strategic you know, place at the, at, at the mouth of the Ohio River in this intersection of these three rivers. But if you were coming from the south, you could get off the boat or the train at a lot of other places before you got to Pittsburgh. So you had to be highly motivated <laughs> to end up in Pittsburgh. And I think, you know, in a way, that was self-selecting. I do want to say, though, I mean, I talked a little bit about kind of what's happened since then. That is not the story of this book. This story is a, I hope, a very uplifting inspirational story of what it was. I hope people will come away maybe thinking it, feeling that maybe if it once was this, wondering how we can bring it back. But um, I, I work very hard not to make this, you know, you read the, from the thing, you know, not all black history is bleak. You know, sadly, I think a lot of the history and the journalism that we read today, it's necessary, uh, but I think it's also important while we're talking about, you know, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, and we're talking about, you know, all the sort of ugly parts of, of our racial history, to also be reminded in the midst of that that there was tremendous achievement um, and genius and spirit, uh, and that's what I wanted to celebrate with this book. Anyway, so thanks for coming. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.